Hi everyone, this is the North East Lawview podcast. My name's Matt. And I'm Neve. And today we're joined by Newcastle University Law School's Dr Sarah Morley and we'll be discussing some really interesting work she's been involved with called the Novel Beings Project. So Sarah, thanks for coming on. How are you doing? Yeah, I'm great, thanks. How are you guys? Good, good, busy, as always. After reading week, it always gets a bit mad again, but it takes a while to settle down and it's finally settling down, so that's good. Uh, it'll be Easter soon as well, so you can take a little break and catch up on anything that you feel like you might have fell behind on. So it's, it's always good to try and keep up to date with your work, but that Easter break, I think, really helped give you a breather before you hit your, you know, your deadlines and your assessments and your exams. Yeah, definitely. So, Sarah, from working with you on the peer mentoring this year, I know that before Christmas and after Christmas has been a lot different. So could you tell us a little bit about how your years sort of changed? Yeah, so I, in the start of this year, so in semester one, I was, you know, regular uh, job teaching, um, admin work with a peer mentoring scheme, um, trying to get all my courses up online and, and learning to teach online like you guys were learning to take classes online um so the start of this year uh, from February onwards has been completely different because I'm now on sabbatical leave so to undertake some research and focus on developing some of my teaching um in particular I'm developing a module to run next year on the master's course. Um, so it's the first time Newcastle have had this module. It's for mergers and acquisitions. So I'm really excited to get this up and going. It's been something that I've been wanting to do since I started at Newcastle. Um, so yeah, that's it's a lot quieter, um, still a bit stressful and different kind of pressure because you go from really high speed um, trying to respond to things quickly, doing a lot of practical work, um, to then really slowing down. And I think if you're not careful, I think like you guys know, once you have a little break, maybe Easter, you, you can let yourself, um, you know, maybe slow down too much. And then it's kind of hard to pick that motivation back up again and change your mind into, you know, from teaching mode to, to research mode. So that's where I am at the minute, but I'm starting to sort of get get into it and um, get excited about writing, researching and developing my new module. So, yeah, um, completely different from the first semester. So I guess going away from sort of the present, could you tell us a little bit about your background? So growing up, um, university, postgraduate and I guess where you're up to now? Yeah, so I am from Hartlepool, which is 40 minutes south yeah, of Newcastle in County Durham on the coast. Um, you know, it's a deprived area, so school was tough, um, not in an academic way. Um, so it wasn't something, being in academia and, and doing a degree, it wasn't really something that was expected of me or something that I thought really to do. And generally a lot of people don't have much of a choice career-wise as to what they go on to. But I, I just knew that um, I wanted to go to university. Um, my parents, my mum didn't have a degree. My dad did a degree late in life um, in his 30s. 
and I just thought a degree and going to university would be a good way to sort of move away from the small town I grew up in and even though I didn't go very far I only went to Newcastle in the end (laughs) because I'm just uh, northeast through and through Um, so it didn't really dawn on me to go into academia um, at all initially. One thing I did think about when I was choosing a law degree was that I wanted a degree that led to a job. Um, so something that I knew had like an identifiable job at the end of it, um, because I knew some like my, my friends, older siblings had done um, maybe like history or um, psychology degrees and mm. then found it really tough to enter the job market. And coming from a place like Hartlepool, where it is a bit more deprived, you have really like this ingrained fear. And suppose everybody does really, but more so, I guess, for places where I grew up that, um, you know, you won't have a job and you need to be qualified for a job. And um, so I I really wanted something that like led into a a career. Um, And so I thought, well, being a solicitor would be great. so that led me to look at Northumbria because at the time it was doing this really innovative degree mm. where it included the LPC within the law degree. So you did it over four years. And in the, sort of the last two years of your degree, you got to work in the student law office. And I thought that was you know really great. Uh, so I did that. So I went to Northumbria, did my law degree, did my LPC, worked in the student law office. Um, still wanted to be a solicitor at that point. But it was coming to the end of graduation. I hadn't really got into applying for training contracts. I'd I'd done a few, but a bit half-heartedly. So I I didn't have it. I'd already had and qualified with my LPC at the end of my degree. Um, So I had a bunch of friends at uni who were from Northern Ireland and they were kind of going back home. And I just decided to go with them. You know, they, they said, you know, we're going to Belfast and we're going to rent a house. Uh, why don't you come with us? And I was like, okay. Um, so straight after graduation, uh, sort of a month or two after graduation, I moved to Belfast and I started a temp job like a couple of days later at uh, the Department of Legal Services in Belfast, which um, is sort of it's the state-run legal department. So representing the NHS and the city council and that was really fun but it was uh, really sort of lower level um, basically I was just tied to the to copier um, but it was great experience because I got to learn how to put together big briefs um, you know look how important cases were run um, and just really got some like practical sort of legal experience. Um, I was only there three months in the end because I managed to somehow miraculously get myself a job uh, at a welfare rights centre in North Belfast, where they specialised in sort of uh, welfare rights for the community. And I got a post specialising in money and debt advice. Um, I, I just I really loved that job I was there for two years uh, it was really interesting um, during this time uh, when I was in Belfast for two years I met my now husband and I really was just missing home and um, 
Seamus, my husband now, he wanted to actually do the LPC or the bar course. He'd also done a law degree. I, I met him uh, at the Department of Legal Services. And um, so I just used it as an opportunity to be like, well, why don't you do uh, um, uh, the LPC or the bar in Newcastle? And then I can move home and you have a reason to move with me. Um, and so we did that. And when he was applying for his course, I was just thinking, you know, what am I going to do? It's actually really hard to get the welfare rights positions, you know, the few and far between. And I wasn't sure whether I'd get a position in Newcastle. So I decided that I'd do a master's degree and I ended up going to Durham. Uh, and that's really where I started to think that academia was more for me. I just loved going back to doing research and learning about the law. And it was in real contrast to that kind of practical work that I'd been doing um, within the Department of Legal Services and the Welfare Rights Centre, um, where there was still a lot of, with Welfare Rights Centre, you're not you know, necessarily legally trained or solicitors, but there's a lot of, sort of legal work undertaken um, and I just started to think that, it, it, you know, it's a good job and I really loved it at the time. But once I started studying for my master's again, I was just, I remembered how much that I really enjoyed just like delving deep into mm -hmm. a particular subject and a really niche subject. Um, and so this, you know, could be something that any student now might be thinking of what you're going to do after mm -hmm. your degree. Um, and really, I think there's no harm in trying different things and if it isn't for you it isn't for you so if you yeah. do end up going to be a paralegal or working in the legal office and it, it's as much for you to figure out whether that's for you or not and then you can always move on and do something else which is what I did I kind of stumbled around <laughs> until I found mm. my career um yeah it academia allows you to delve into the law in a way that working in a legal office doesn't always allow you I mean it definitely does once you become qualified and yeah. you work long enough that you can specialize in a niche but I felt like still on a day-to-day -day basis you don't get to explore the law in a way that you have the freedom to do in academia uh, and so from doing that in my master's I was just I, I really wanted to do my PhD um, but the only way that I could do it was with a funded scholarship so I had to sort of take a year out from finishing my master's. So I, because by the point I finished my master's, I'd missed all the PhD funding applications, right. which normally happen sort of earlier in the year. So I went back to working in a legal office um, and sort of applied for PhDs from there and uh, started writing my uh, proposal for my PhD and, and I got into Durham fully funded which was great I got a scholarship and got a um, you know a, a, sort of a payment in return for teaching uh, so I was all set and that was great uh, and then from there I once I sort of finished up at Durham I came over to Newcastle in 2016 and I've been here ever since so that's kind of my accidental long way around journey to academia. So I've done a bit of like practical work uh, in legal offices and uh, a bit of advocacy as well. Uh, and then did my master's and my PhD and a lot of teaching along the way. 
Mm. No, it's nice to hear that you kind of tried everything out. I think there's there can be a lot of pressure, whether like external or kind of within yourself to get it right first time, especially mm. because decisions that you make if you want to go down the LPC or the BTC route can be very expensive. And so it's nice to hear that that's not really a decision that has to be so like straightforward and it's not kind of it doesn't have to be this massive like life-changing decision mm. oh yeah for sure you can you know I mean sometimes it can have financial risks but just because you decide to go down one route doesn't necessarily mean that you have to continue down that route and you know you can try working in a legal office you can you know train at the citizens advice bureau and and try out you know through through sort of a rights um center law center kind of vibe as well and there's so many careers in law uh that you don't need to qualify for that you can do and still be involved in law and enjoy it um that's something as well that i learned you know having done my lpc but not actually qualifying as a solicitor there are still ways that you can use those skills from your law degree from your lpc um in the legal setting without needing to be qualified um and also you can change your mind and, and do a master's um you know i i i was probably you know not a mature phd student but i was definitely older than a lot of those who just come straight from doing their degree and their masters, you know, there's there's always time. Um, my husband's the same. He started off doing the bar course, uh, got called to the bar, and then ended up qualifying as a solicitor. Um, you know, so so there's lots of wiggly ways around, mm. you know, changing your career. But I think his story's for another time, really. Yeah. No, that's, yeah, it's cool. I like the sort of the fact that you've tried different things and, and you've come back to academia. Um, so I guess you, you took us up to where you are now, sort of, when you came to Newcastle. So I don't think I have been taught by you. I'm not sure if Neve has. I don't think she has. So what area do you teach in and, and do you research in as well? Yeah, so um, I've taught on a lot of different courses in Newcastle, um, mainly because... Um, I'm a company lawyer and mm. you kind of have a bit of flexibility in that because uh, within company law you, you cover things like contract um, so uh, I've, I've taught on the undergraduate contract module so if you're in stage one you may have had me for tutorials um, I've also taught on the company law uh, stage three module I largely teach on the master's module um, which is you know where I really get to focus on sort of my particular expertise and specialism. Um, so, as I said, I, I would classify myself as a company lawyer, um, but my particular sort of teaching research interests cover corporate governance and then specifically takeover regulation, which is the actual subject of my PhD. So I looked at um, litigation in takeovers and it was a comparative study between the UK and the US. Um, so in the US, over 90% of takeovers will have litigation in it that slow it down. And in the UK, um, it was said that there was no litigation. So as part of my PhD, I, I, I sort of went through and calculated and, and did a, you know, a study into 
how much litigation there actually was in the UK and, and it, it confirmed that yes, that there is no sort of takeover litigation and sort of why that was. Um, and there's a there's a theory around, you know, it's to do with certain rules of takeover regulation, but I, I wanted to actually, you know, confirm that because it was based on a lot of assumptions. So it was a, you know, does this need to be debunked? Uh, can it be confirmed? And it, you know, partly it is because of the, the rules in the UK, but also that it's a bit more complicated, like everything is, isn't it? You know, there's sometimes there's not just one overriding reason why something mm. the way it is. And when you delve a bit deeper into it, it's a bit more complicated. So it was for another um, number of other reasons other than purely the sort of takeover regulation had to do with like UK culture and other company laws that fed into it um, and, and, and different kinds of actions that you can take uh, through legislation. So, you know, how you actually can bring the case to court. So in, in the US they have um, different ways you, you can bring litigation and who has the right to bring litigation that are different from here in the UK. So in the US they have what you might have heard of as a class action mm. where it makes it pretty easy for Americans to bring litigation um, against corporations where in the UK we don't have a similar system. We have a few sort of class actions in relation to consumer law, but not really ones that are applicable to sort of take over. So it's a bit, it, was, it turned out it was a bit more complicated. So my that's kind of where my PhD research um, left me. Uh, so specializing in takeovers, hence the new merge and acquisitions module for mm. masters. Um, and teach on the corporate governance, corporate finance module on the masters. And then again, because I'm a company lawyer, I tend to be quite flexible. So I, I teach a lot of service um, modules that they're called. So uh, teaching to the business school and even teaching basics of law to translation students. Um, so, you, you know, I, I can cover a lot of different sort of introduction to business classes and then also some of the, the legal skills side of things as well, which uh, used to be the wider academic um, skills program, nice. um, but now is legal skills, which uh, is sort of purely more legal. How, how do we learn the law? How do we write about the law? Um, so yeah, I've got my uh, sort of my fingers in a lot of pies in terms of yeah. modules I teach at the law school, but. Um, mainly all derived from from company law. Cool. Yeah. No. There's a. There's yeah. There's a lot there. I guess uh, maybe it's from my own fault, but sort of knowing what actual masters courses there are within you know Newcastle is something that I'm not that aware of. I don't know if if more people are. Um, I had a friend. I think in my first year he was doing a masters, and he was doing it in some sort of international terrorism law or something that sounded pretty cool but um yeah there's probably loads out there much more niche um more specific i guess um, yeah it definitely is it's um you know if you think about a masters it's it's a good way especially in newcastle um because it's where the staff the academic staff really get to mm. showcase their expertise and and it's teaching directly re related to their actual research yeah um Actually, a lot of the academics teaching on the core modules um, in the undergraduate, they're all connected to their research interests. Um, but you tend to get the more sort of niche 
subjects um, in stage three. I'm sure you guys are taking um, some really cool stage three modules mm. where academics are getting to showcase a bit of their own research expertise. But it's the same for sort of the masters and it's kind of shaped by who is available to teach and what their research expertise is. So it's kind of cool that way um, that you can really learn a lot more in depth from the masters um, because it is someone's specialism. Yeah. You tend to always be able to pick up when I'm sat in lectures and you might be able to, or in a seminar and like whoever's teaching seems particularly enthusiastic about a particular area. You can kind of tell that that's their niche. Yeah, exactly. It's um, But that's a good thing, though, isn't it? We want people to be passionate. And that's what makes research so good for teaching as well, to have an active academic staff undertake research. It really informs you guys because you're getting, like, our passion delivered to you through teaching. Um, and I think that's going to be more interesting for you, too, to learn from someone who kind of cares about what they're teaching. Yeah, I've definitely noticed this. I'm sure you'll notice it leave next year when you go on to stage three. But um, sort of reading lists often contain work from teachers in that module um, a lot more. Um, you know, I, mean, I was having a lecture today with Colin Murray and he was he put in one of his articles in for family law. Richard Collier has a lot of work. Um, and then I did the literature module and Ian Ward, I think, for literally every topic had, you know, a piece of work that you could read. Um so it's it's cool. It is cool, sort of reading the stuff from the teacher that you have for the module. Um, so I guess it's probably a good chance to sort of move on to sort of the work that we're going to be talking about today. Now, um, this is a bit different to what we've done in other podcasts where we've had maybe a blog post or an article. So this I called it the Novel Beings Project. I think in the introduction, um, and I guess sort of a first question before we sort of get into it a little bit more is could you just explain I guess what the project is without having to you know go into too much detail um but just like generally and, and sort of the process the sort of process of where you're up to with it and sort of um yeah plans for it coming out and things like that yes the, explaining the process may, might uh, take a long time yeah. uh, I could talk to you for hours about it um but trying to just keep it really sort of simple and brief novel beings as uh, the name of our project so yeah novel beings project um is looking at sort of emerging technologies new technology um so things around gene science neurotechnology um AI um all sorts of this new technology that's developing could be nanotechnology um sort of biotechnology all all these new creations that may lead to new beings hence the the novel beings aspect of it um technology that challenges us to think about rights and personhood and, and what it means to be human and thinking about the, the new technology that is currently being created and technology that could be created in 10, 20, so 50 years uh, and thinking that we should probably start to think about how we want to regulate this technology. You know, 
do we want it even to exist? Because you could be creating new life. You know, it, it could be possible to create a synthetic em embryo that could be implanted uh, and grow to a human being and be birthed. And you possibly wouldn't know the difference between it and somebody else. Now that is a really sci-fi thing to think about. And, and lots of scientists and academics say that it's not possible. That's probably never gonna happen. Um, but that's kind of the extreme, isn't it? Is thinking about a being that would have human level intelligence and versus other smaller things that are already beginning to happen that may have some form of consciousness that may warrant some sort of moral status or protection under the law. So it's, it's thinking about whether we should be able to create this technology. If so, how do we ensure that the creators or developers of this technology are held accountable, that they're doing it responsibly? And where I come in is that generally this new technology is going to be developed by corporations, multinational corporations. And the feeling is as well, as if, it's, um, if it is possibly developed by individuals or, or smaller private companies it's likely that they're probably going to be bought up and taken over by a large multinational corporation at some point anyway because that's kind of just what happens uh, we see it all the time so it's this idea of you know how, how do we ensure that we hold the developers possibly corporations responsible how do we make sure that they're transparent not only to the public but maybe to their investors um and do we need to also think about whether beings being created are, are deserving of any protection under the law for themselves individually? Um, do they, should they have any rights or obligations under the law? Um, and so that's the, the more like sci-fi in the future. May never happen, but within the project, we think it's really important to think about these things because... Mm from our perspective, it's better to have this discourse and this discussion now um, than sort of rush and try to regulate a problem that may come up during the course of technology being developed. So we want to avoid sort of regulation coming out that's like really piecemeal, um, problem specific, which it currently is. So we see a lot of talk about regulation of the self-driving cars um, a facial recognition software and we probably all saw the deep fake of Tom Cruise you know that sort of software and that's very basic AI so it's not like we're saying that that sort of technology deserves any rights or protections because it, it's not sentient it's what we call an expert system it's clever but it is in no way replicating consciousness that we might know from, say, an animal, um, even from something like an insect. Um, so it, it's about thinking about what is going on now, what's being developed now, what's the possibility for the future, and how might we prepare to regulate for it so that we're ready and avoid sort of problems that maybe we see today with the internet, for example, where Pandora's box is opened, we couldn't predict social media, or maybe, uh, you know, those that predicted it didn't quite get listened to. And then you have regulation that comes too late. And then it's very hard to take back some of the problems that already exist on social media platforms, 
and then you start giving jobs to regulators that already exist like Ofcom is now looking at to try and regulate um, behavior online uh, and it's given a job to a body that was never prepared to have that job and may not actually be able to do it so it's thinking about you know do we need regulation do we need a regulator how are we going to do it what sort of regulation so it's the project is in its very early stages it's really only been running since 2017 and it's going to be a decades-long project because it's going to take a lot of time to think about these problems it's also a multidisciplinary project so in in order to sort of tackle these issues you need to not just have lawyers thinking about it you need doctors you need scientists um, you, you need philosophers, ethicists, bioethicists, um, so many different people. And these are the kind of people that have been trying to track to our project. So it's run by myself and Dr. David Lawrence. Uh, so he used to be at Newcastle Law School. Uh, he's a bioethicist. Uh, hence, you know, the, even the original initial start of the project um, was multidisciplinary because he's not a lawyer. Um, he looks at more of the ethics and applies them to law. Um, uh, and it kind of, yeah, just developed from us. Well, we, we ended up sharing an office in our first year. So when I started at Newcastle, uh, we were a bit tight on space. And so they're like, do you mind sharing? I was like, okay, it's going to be a nightmare. What if I hate this person? You know, it's nothing worse than like having to share an office with someone that might be really awkward. And actually it was great because, you know, we're really good friends now and we developed this project together. And it, it really just came about because we were chatting both about what we were passionate about. So he already had sort of this grasp um, of this idea of novel beings he'd already been sort of exploring it but sort of through me probably asking what I thought were stupid or inane questions really started to think do you know what this has never been just thought about before no one's writing about this this could be something and so we decided to sort of just go for it and to create the project um yeah, and it's just kind of snowballed from there. And we managed mm -hmm. to get some funding from the Wellcome Trust, a small grant um, that was called Regulating the Trail Corporation, which is actually kind of what we were inspired by initially because we both love Blade Runner. I don't know if you've, if you've seen Blade Runner. The I original, not the Ryan Reynolds. I can't say I've actually seen it, though. Did you sorry? Do you say you've seen it? No, I'm you guys need to go away and watch it. It's a classic. <laughs> uh, Harrison Ford, um, Blade Runner. Anyway, the basics of Blade Runner is there's this corporation, the Trail Corporation, and they're developing what they call um, replicants. Mm. And some of these replicants have escaped over time, and the police. So. Um, are actually charged with finding the replicants and sort of shutting them down, uh, aka killing them. But these replicants are basically or show, um, you know, the consciousness, the same conscious level of, of human beings. So um, they're, they're being killed really by the state um, for the, this, the, this technology of this corporation has developed. Um, you know, again, that's like the the really sci-fi end level we may never get there but it's sort of fun to think about these things yeah. as well um 
but yeah if you've never seen Blade Runner you have to give it a watch it's so it's such a good classic film the original uh one and actually fun fact uh the opening scenes uh is Middlesbrough so connection to me as well um (laughs) maybe not Middlesbrough in its best light but I I think technology is beautiful so I I like it um so yeah that's kind of I guess in a nutshell or it wasn't a very short nutshell but that's kind of you know what it's about how we got started um and yeah a little little bit about what we're thinking about Mm. so what have you been doing with all your research of um have you been writing articles Uh, have you got anything bigger planned yeah so we've done a lot so with the Welcome Trust uh, funding, we were able to hold a series of events over a 12-month period. Um, so we had a, like a, a small workshop where we sort of hashed out our initial ideas with some invited participants who we were lucky to attract some really, you know, top academics in, in sort of um, ethics and um, law and then from there we held two workshops we split it into the sort of company law side of things and then the more ethics bioethics side Um, and again invited people to come and contribute papers and talk and discuss and then we were able to have a two-day conference in london in the welcome collection building which is really cool if you're ever in london it's free to go in uh, if you can ever go to london again (laughs) It's really nice, it's free, uh, really cool buildings. Um, and again, we got to sort of showcase the, the work that others had also developed um, by being inspired by our project and thinking about this idea of novel beings and how their discipline sort of applies to our sort of project. And it's funny because you, you approach certain people and they are like, no, my research doesn't fit with what you're doing at all. There's no way I can apply what I'm doing to, uh, you know, replicant or novel beings. Um, and after getting talked to them, this happens all the time. Like, no, 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 you, you do have something to say because, uh, I don't know, human rights law or even um, children's rights law, where you can say, you know, if you've got a novel being developing, like maybe it has consciousness, but maybe it doesn't have the capacity uh, to make decisions that have like a legal responsibility. So how do we might apply norms we already have in children's rights, for example, to the novel beings to think about, you know, when something might have consciousness, but it doesn't have capacity for legal responsibility. So then if it doesn't have legal responsibility, who does? Is it the owner? Is it the developer? Um, so, so that sort of thing, you know, very, very similar to um, animal rights as well. So we, we say already, you know, that there is already a moral hierarchy in law um, that's kind of just naturally happened. You know, we have higher rights than a child. We have higher rights than animals. And then even within the animal kingdom, they're also sort of in a hierarchy of how we see their moral agency um and we regulate around that particularly around you know dogs are giving a high sort of priority mm. in the law for protection cats um there's been great eight great ape cases for sort of personhood and legal rights and then even down to things like mice in labs are protected through regulation because we understand that they have consciousness and can feel pain 
but they're mm. ne not necessarily um, as developed as a child, for example, they're an extreme jump. Um, but, you know, a, a mouse wouldn't suffer, you would say, um, you know, ethics wise, wouldn't suffer as much as a child who you're experimenting on. So the law already creates a hierarchy. So it's thinking about like, how do we take the legal norms that might already exist and apply them to new novel beings to think about, you know, what makes us human, what makes something worthy of moral status, um, what makes something sentient or sapient um, and, and sort of create or borrow legal norms that already exist to create like a regulatory system. So it's really funny, like I said, you approaching somebody who does maybe a very niche um, set of laws and they've never really thought about emerging technology before. And it's fun because you get to convince them that, you know, what they're doing is relevant. No, that, that, that's great. Um, and if anyone who's listening is maybe interested in like the animal rights and legal personhood side, um, Dr. Josh Jowett at Newcastle, that's one of his main remits. So he's done a video episode on the video side of the uh, Northeast Law Review, if you want to go and check that out. Mm. And also he was in episode five of the podcast where they did a debate about whether the law was fair just to reasonable so just wanted to drop that in and say that if our listeners are interested in that Sarah have you kind of I'm presuming you've had many a discussion with Josh about oh yeah this. so Josh was one of the people we approached in the beginning when David and I were putting the project together especially when we were doing our workshops and our events in our first year of funding and said because I think at that point Josh had already had a few um, articles out on you know great apes and personhood and we were like have you ever thought about applying this to uh, novel beings and new technology and so he was one of our speakers at one of our events and um, through the project um, I've got to travel the world a bit uh, going to different conferences which has been really fun which is how we've also been able to sort of grow our network with sort of international collaborators um, but through that we then also were able to develop a network we could draw on and we were through that and through our events and um, we were able to get a special edition of the Cambridge Healthcare and Ethics Quarterly um, and Josh has a article within that so the, the special journal is dedicated to our project and so a lot of our contributors have written a journal article for that. So David and I wrote an article which just very plainly sets out what we mean by novel being, setting out the problem, where we are, what the gaps in the law are. And then we've got some great uh, contributors who've then kind of talked about what they've developed during the project and you know how they've been inspired by novel beings and how they're applying their expertise to the problem. Um, and from that as well, I know you asked earlier what other stuff we've done, and I, I kind of stopped at the end of our funding bid, but that was quite a while ago. And since then, like I said, we've got the, um, the special journal. We've also just got a book contract with Edward Elgar that we hope will be out in 2022. So we're just starting to write that now. And again, we've got um, contributors who are sort of taking their expertise in law and applying it to the problem. Um, the book is a bit more law focused, whereas the journal was a bit more sort of ethics and healthcare focused with some law aspects, obviously with Josh there. Um, yeah, the book's currently what we're working on. 
and we've got another workshop coming up at the end of March where we get to speak to our collaborators again which is great because that's been one of the things that's been tough with continuing on the project um so we had some some uh, additional funding that we were trying to spend um last year to run some events but obviously they had to be cancelled and then trying to spend the money this year and having to do uh, workshops online it, it makes it difficult to progress the project as much as you want because you're not able to speak to collaborators and you know I haven't seen David now for over a year we've obviously spoken online but not face to face and that kind of makes it difficult for the project too because a, a lot of what we do just comes from hours and hours of talking about yeah you know, our area where we want to go, what we think and, and channel it into different things like funding applications and um, publications um, and also, you know, governmental reports. We were cited in the House of Lords uh, report on how we might go about regulating AI as well. So the project, as we see it, is a long term. As I said, we hope it'll run for decades um, and we just want to keep producing and developing until eventually, hopefully, we might have some recommendations for regulation, but mm. it is and will require that multidisciplinary um, element. It, it can't just be from David and I's brain. We need, you know, we've, we've got um, medical doctors and neurosurgeons and, um, you know, people who are working with biotechnology who are developing this technology. We've got all sorts of lawyers and ethicists and bioethicists um, and even from the creative side as well, or um, from uh, archaeology and um, sort of architecture. So from the creative arts too. So when we're thinking about, you know, what, what does it mean to be human? What separates us from other things that have moral status to be able to then um, sort of slot a novel being? Obviously, it's never going to be that easy, but in order to be able to regulate something, you kind of have to be able to define it and to put it in a little box, even though not everything necessarily fits clearly into a box. But, you know, you've got to draw the line in the sand somewhere. And so to be able to do that, you've got to, like I said, think about what it is that makes us human and what separates us from animals and then what maybe separates different animals from each other. And the creative art side of things from Newcastle, you know, we have different artists and um, who, who come to talk to us about creativity and imagination, you know, all these things that make us human and that you can obviously sometimes see in animals. Like, you know, I have cats and you can see that they have, may not imagination, creativity to our extent, but you can see that there's something going on up there. So it's thinking about that and trying to apply it to mm. new technology that's coming out. Yeah, no, it's also, it's really, really interesting. And, and I mean, because you're leading it, I couldn't imagine sort of how interesting, but at the same time, trying to sort of bring it all together must be, yeah, really hard. And that, that idea that you and uh, David, who you've done it with, started it because you literally couldn't get away from each other in the office. And now you literally, because of restrictions, can't see each other. Um, yeah, it's, it's different. So you showed us a little bit about the sort of summaries of chapters for the um, the book that you're sort of working on. So, but specifically with your chapter, because I know you're doing things with the intro and the conclusion, I think, but 
Could you tell us a little bit about your chapter? Yeah, so in the edited collection, um, I have a chapter where I look more specifically at corporate law and think about corporate social responsibility. So currently, there's really not much regulation that says, you know, a corporation can or can't develop certain types of emerging technologies. Um, There's obviously director's duties where they have to think about the shareholder and to some extent, the stakeholders of the corporation. So employees, um, you know, consumers, suppliers, though that's arguable to an extent, but that's sort of another topic. Um, there, there isn't any real regulation to stop um, somebody from developing something. Um, so to give you an example, um, one of the things that's really of interest is um, brain organoids. Um, so this is like one of the, the new pieces of technology. And this is kind of where, you know, I find it really difficult because I'm not from a science background. I'm not from a medical background. So it has been quite hard sometimes to read up on the new technology, especially when it comes from the synthetic biology or biotechnology area, because it tends to be very technical. But thankfully, David does come from a medical background. So he's often able to explain things to me. Um, But brain organoids is something that he's starting to work on for the project, which is now where scientists are growing mini brains. So basically from stem cells or embryonic stem cells um, are growing uh, these tiny little mini brains. So after this, just Google brain organoids and you'll see the little pictures of these little tiny brains in these petri dishes. Um, they're not entire brains, they're sort of parts of brains and they're, they're grown to um, study diseases, so brain diseases. And because of how complex our brains are, it's pretty hard to replicate diseases in other sort of animal brains. Um, so it's really clever that they're, you know, they're growing these things to be able to understand the human brain better. But um, who's to say that they're not going to one day grow a whole brain that is going to be able to be conscious? Um, I think I recently read at UCLA and Stanford University that they've allowed these little mini brains to sort of mature as much as they can uh, for a little brain in a petri dish but they're starting to say that they grow very much like an infant brain and they mature and they start to make these cell connections um obviously again not yet conscious very cool but um there's still sort of um these little um pieces of technology that you know, you don't have regulations saying that you can't develop that. <laughs> you have to be careful. You may accidentally create consciousness. Um, and there's nothing that stops a corporation currently or a university currently from doing those sorts of things. So mm-hmm. from that, then we have to hope that corporations themselves are responsible. So that's where the CSR side comes into it. And so I delve into okay, if there's gaps in the regulations and corporations can and universities can do these things, so universities don't really fall under company law, um, that's sort of a separate sort of technical issue, um, but say these corporations might be developing the same technology or different technology that may also one day accidentally create life or maybe they create life on purpose uh, or they create something that, you know, might suffer harm or might harm us, um, 
do we want to rely on soft law and corporate social responsibility? Do we want to give this much power to corporations to deal with, you know, really significant uh, questions about life when they've not necessarily done the best job with other forms of technology? So we've seen even with AI algorithms and expert systems that, you know, they've been able to take data and manipulate that data and you know, there's all sorts of different problems with different um, technology companies, which I'm sure you'll all be aware of, um, which I don't have time to delve into. But the general idea is, and I talk about specifically the different problems in, in the chapter, is um, it's probably not a good idea to use COP social responsibility, largely because it's very hard to enforce something that is self-regulatory or voluntary. So a lot of corporate social responsibility falls to um, statements that the companies make. So on their website, they may say that they're going to develop the technology responsibly, mm-hmm. but it's then it's hard to say, you know, that that's not very specific. That's quite vague. What do you mean by develop technology responsibly? How do we know that you're developing that technology responsibly? Because you're not transparent. Often these big tech companies are not divulging, you know, the extent to which they're developing very significant technology. Um, often it's also at the behest of governments too. Um, so it's it's this idea that perhaps when it comes to something so important um, as emerging technology, we need to think about actually enforcing some hard regulation Mm. so there'll always be a place for soft law um so that's like guidance and codes and ethics codes um but we also need to think about hard laws that allow us to enforce or at least require companies to disclose you know and be less vague and more specific about what it is they're doing and to also be able to hold them accountable so that's kind of in a nutshell what the chapter is about and there's definitely um a fear that if we allow corporations to develop these technologies that uh, we won't be able to control them and i said it's like pandora's box it'll be out in the open and it'll mm. be too late you know once they've already developed it um it might be then too late to, to go back and regulate it yeah i guess you don't want to be you don't want this kind of dystopian potential future to unfold without like anyone being prepared how do you think like I know you said you didn't really go into the specifics of the hard law but is it not really difficult to kind of regulate something that you is kind of, you're kind of just hypothesizing you're kind of <laughs> guessing how it's gonna fold out yeah totally and this is actually the the subject of our workshop that's coming up so and this is why we need to think about this now um as well because you in this kind of area you have to make sure that you have regulation that encompasses what we've already got but also think about the possibilities and it's it's like almost impossible to predict where we'll be in five ten years fifty years time um But the idea is, if we think about it now and we talk about it now, that we are able to at least be prepared. You know, if we start to think about, okay, 
you know, at the very extreme end, if we end up with something like a replicant from Blade Runner, how are we going to handle it? Hopefully not shooting them down in the street like they do in the film. Um, but maybe we could ensure that, you know, we are treating them respectfully and they have rights and obligations of their own under the law. Or, you know, they have some sort of protections and at the lower end as well. If you're creating something that has consciousness that doesn't have um you know, a high enough moral status to warrant obligations that were at least not allowing it to suffer in a way um, that would be immoral. Um, so it, it's trying to think about this scale, you know, at the top end, you've got like a replicant and at the bottom end, you might have something that's inanimate like AI software currently is. And then in that scale, you have this idea of, you know, as you go up in consciousness and capacity, um, the more rights and obligations that the novel being has and when you're at the bottom the lower sort of rights and obligations it has and then maybe responsibility for that technology falls to the producer or the developer or the or the owner um, so it is it's like trying to think really broadly but we, we know that we're never going to predict, predict everything and we know a lot of the criticisms that we usually get is that you, you re you're trying to regulate for something that you don't know is going to happen and Roger Brownstone actually has some great literature and journal articles he's already written on that. And we're actually lucky enough to have him come speak to us at his workshop about specifically this problem, you know, and it really to us, it seems like, isn't it better to think about like, the scale of things and how we might possibly react to deal with things and um, just be blindsided and not have thought about it at all? I guess... One last question about it is you mentioned the Twitter and website. Is there anything you want to sort of, I guess, say what could be going on there? Yeah. So if you are interested by this project, first of all, go watch Blade Runner. Second of all, Google <laughs> Brain Organoids. Um, and then come follow us on Twitter. So we're at novel underscore beings. Um, so you'll get updates on, um, you know, what we're up to. Um this is a closed workshop upcoming, but often we do hold events where students are more than welcome to attend. Um, you know, and you can always drop David and I an email if you're interested and want to ask us a question. And we'll also let you know um, when our special journal edition will come out. So that includes Josh's um, article that he's mm. written uh, on our project and many other really, really interesting um different opinions on it and that should come out this summer um and so if you follow us on twitter we'll let you know when when work comes out that you can read we also hope to in the near future set up a website where we'll put up blog posts and we'll have guest blog posts so if you're really interested in this sort of area of law and emerging technology um follow us on twitter and we'll keep you up to date with what's going on and you can read more about the project um with the different articles have a look at david lawrence's um articles he's already published a lot on this area as i said you know it, it was really a focus of his phd work this idea of um emerging technology and bioethics so there's already a lot of stuff available from david um and yeah the, just keep an eye on our project hopefully more exciting things to come yeah, I think it would be a pretty cool sort of thing to come back in later years if the podcast's going and, and, and sort of catch up of how things are getting on and, and yeah, and developments in the area, I guess. So, yeah, no, it's really interesting work um, and it's really cool to hear about it. 
Yeah, you're um, uh, you're our first guest who's ever set homework to our listeners. So. <laughs> I'm ever the teacher. <laughs> yeah, I, I swear it will not be wasted time. It will be fun. Yeah, no, it's it's really interesting, and it's sort of there's there's something for everyone. It feels like um, whether you're doing yeah. law or not. Yeah, if you're interested in medical law, if you're interested in ethics, you know, if you're interested in human rights, animal mm. rights, um, company law, really this kind of project thinking about emerging technology I think it um will satisfy sort of anybody's interests yeah but I guess that's all we have I mean we could talk about forever I feel like and I feel like you've got some loads you could talk about but I yeah. think that's all the time we've got um so yeah thank you very much for listening if there are any Newcastle law students listening who would like to get involved um as a host or an academic or legal professional who would like to come on and talk about and their work on the podcast please email n-e-l-r at newcastle.ac.uk um but thanks a lot sarah really interesting chat there yeah thank you yeah thanks both it's been great